There is no gentle way to cut off somebody's head unless you're trying to cut it off nicely, then it's going to be torture. What do you do after that? Have a game plan laid out. That's Chris Voss, former lead international kidnapping negotiator for the FBI, founder and CEO of the Black Swan Group, and the New York Times bestselling author of Never Split the Difference. People want a way forward. They want to know what the truth is. They appreciate straight shooters. What's a straight shooter? A straight shooter is somebody who tells the truth in an emotionally intelligent way. They don't let people twist in the wind. They don't torture people in the guise of being nice. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. Today, we're revisiting one of our most popular episodes from the podcast where I sat down with the one and only Chris Voss to discuss how to leverage emotional intelligence and tactical empathy, why a good negotiator should forget rationality, and the secret to gaining the upper hand in any negotiation. Ah, they're fine, they're fine, everything's good, everything's good. But the point was you ask the question which plants a seed in their mind, and then they're gonna think twice about it. You need to ask those questions a couple of times. Enough so that this person starts to think of themselves, you know, maybe I'd better double check. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Michael, happy to be here. So I've got to know, you know, at what point in your career or even in your life did you make the decision that negotiation or becoming an expert in negotiation would be the path for you? Well, I was trying to get on the team, the hostage negotiation team in New York, and I was told that I was eminently unqualified, which at the time I was. And then a woman, Amy Bondaro, that was in charge of the team said, go and volunteer on a suicide hotline. I was just doing it because I wanted to be on the team. And when I got there, you know, that's really, that's emotional intelligence on steroids. And I was so blown away at its application that I started then putting it into my daily life and, you know, my personal interactions, my business interactions. And as soon as I started seeing a difference there, I mean, I was hooked. I was really hooked. It was, it was, it was magic. It was great. So do you think that there was something inherent in you in this, in terms of like either a skill set that you had that, that really drew you to that and in being successful at it? I think of myself as a really regular guy and I like anything that will give me the edge on people who think they're smarter than me. <laughs> I didn't expect to be telling you this, but, uh, you know, the Bureau's famous for hiring attorneys. So when I went to Quantico, my overriding goal was to score higher on the legal tests than the attorneys, which I did. So I wanted to beat them, right? You know, because I figured they were all smarter than me. 
So um, I like stuff that can give a regular person an advantage. I think uh, also, I think I'm open to learning. I grew up in a very can-do, figure-it-out environment. Like my father gave me a task and expect me to just figure it out. I mean, literally, my older sister and I tore down the garage in our backyard when I was about 11 years old because my dad wanted a new garage, and he gave us each crowbars and said, go figure out how to tear down a garage. <laughs> so stuff that is uncomplicated but is ridiculously effective. I found that to be the case on a, on a suicide hotline I was on. It wasn't terribly complicated. It was ridiculously effective. So I've always liked stuff like that. So on that note, I know you've said previously that everything that most people have been taught about negotiation is wrong. Yeah. So, so what are some of the biggest misconceptions people have when it comes to negotiation? Well, first, that you got to make your argument, that it's a logical, rational approach, that if you just make a great argument, that you're a great negotiator. There is nothing rational Rationality, by definition, is just it's beauty. It's in the eye of the beholder. So you got to let that go. Like like getting to yes was you know is a rational approach to negotiation. Everybody's heard of get, getting to yes. Anybody that took a negotiation course probably had it on their reading list. It's eminently rational. It's intellectually flawless. Human beings are not intellectually flawless. And actually, I ran across Roger Fisher and I taught negotiation at Harvard Law School. I was on a teaching staff there. And I got to meet Roger Fisher, who wrote Getting to Yes, along with a couple of other guys. But Roger Fisher's emotional intelligence through the roof. You would never know how good he was with people based on that book because he was in an academic environment. He had, they had to put out a book that was academically rigorous, but his application of it was all emotional intelligence. So it's a rambling answer that negotiation has got nothing to do with logic. I don't think there's many people that would argue that being good at negotiation is valuable. But how valuable are we talking? Like, just in terms of not just the applications in one's business, but in one's life, like, just how valuable can it be? It's astonishing. I mean, the difference it makes in people's lives on a regular and consistent basis, people are so blown away by just learning some of the skills that they're saying, like, I, I, I should be on your staff. They learn maybe two ideas, and they're killing it. They're doing 10 times better than they were. They're doing better than anybody inside their company that were their internal competition. It's made such a difference. They're just scratching the surface, and they change their lives. I mean, they literally change, change people's lives. Who do you feel needs to or could stand to benefit from becoming a good negotiator the most? Well, if, if people matter to you, then you will benefit the most. Um, because you're going to make better deals with people. It's going to come to you more naturally. The, this style of negotiation, this emotional intelligence-based approach, is uh, the ultimate in collaboration. So if you want to collaborate, then this is, you're going to do well with this. If you want to be adversarial, some of the people that are very adversarial pick and choose certain things from the book and they use it. Mm -hmm. But being adversarial is toxic, ultimately. It puts a toxin on all your relationships. It becomes how you interact with people, which means across the board, you're going to have trouble maintaining stable relationships that are productive long term. Yeah. And would you say that there are particular traits or skill sets that make somebody a good negotiator? I know you mentioned emotional intelligence, but what, what are some others? Well, really, um, if you're open to learning, you know, openness is a, is a characteristic that you can actually test for. In professional sports, they call it coachability. 
there's something out there called the five-factor inventory. One of those factors is, is openness or coachability. So if, if you're open to learning or you work hard or both. I think of myself as somebody who works hard and who's really open to learning. There are some people who are less open to learning, but they work so darn hard, they're going to overcome that just by sheer force of will. So those are the two principal characteristics for, for getting good at this. So along the lines of what you're saying, it seems like a lot of it can be developed. I'm a subscriber to the uh, Daniel Coyle, The Talent Code, the book that he wrote on that. And he pretty much contends that everything is learned. You know, the, the prodigies, the geniuses, they just started getting their 10,000 hours in before anybody else did. You know, they, uh, a musical prodigy. For whatever reason, a kid got interested in music and was fascinated by it at two, three, four. So by the time they were six or seven years old, people were suddenly astonished, but they just started putting in that, their hours sooner. So I'm very much uh, a believer that, that everything is learned. Pretty much everything is learned. You can't teach height other than that, you know. That's right. Okay. So uh, I'm going to ask you a question that I'm sure this is the very first time you've ever been asked this question. You have a book that's called Never Split the Difference. Why in negotiations should we never split the difference? Yeah, well, there are two reasons. It's either a sucker's move or a fool's move. And neither one of those reasons are good. All right, so a lot of people will sucker you into splitting the difference. And, you know, we'll be in a company, we'll be training, and one of their executives who's not in the training will stop me at lunch and go, you know, I split the difference all the time. I use it, I use it all the time. So what's wrong with that? And I'll say, well, most people that split the difference just jack up the numbers that they want, put them way out of line, and it's actually a sucker move. They, put, they got you back to where they wanted to be the whole time, but they, they're lying to you, and they, you're going to think it's fair, the F word, and you're going to sucker, be suckered by that move. Every single time somebody pulls me off to the side in a company, they go like, yeah, yeah, I always ask for more than what I want so I can end up where I always wanted to be. So number one, it's a sucker move. The other side is, is probably conning you. Now, what makes it a fool's move? Splitting a difference means I take a little of your idea, I take a little of my idea, you know, we try to blend them together. That's apples and oranges. It's the, the analogy we put in the book is a black shoe, brown shoe. You know, you don't know whether or not to wear a black shoe with this, black shoes with this suit or brown shoes. So let's split the difference. I wore one of each. I mean, it's just, it's so bad. Splitting the difference or compromising. If there's a, a company I know a dispute between the two uh, co-CEOs, the board settles it out by splitting the difference and basically banishing them both and bringing in a brand new CEO. Now, I know from what was going on behind the scenes, one of those CEOs was completely in the right. The other guy who was, had more to do with starting the company and everybody felt loyal to him, the other guy wanted a secret expense account with no monitoring. They had every indication that the money was going to entertainment that was unsavory. But the board wanted a compromise. They didn't want to be too, they wanted to be fair to both sides. And they threw both guys out. And now, now the company is struggling to regain its direction. So compromise splitting a difference, chances are you're going to water down both sides and it's just going to be a bad idea. Chris honed his negotiation skills under unique circumstances. His years as the FBI's lead international kidnapping negotiator put him in high-pressure, challenging negotiations on a regular basis. In those situations, the stakes were much higher 
than in most of the negotiations we experience on a daily basis. I wondered if there was a particular case from those years that stuck out to him as especially formative in refining his tactics. Well, one of the biggest ones, and um, we talk about it in the book, uh, the Burnham Sabero case in the Philippines. Now, we we just come off of a kidnapping that went beautifully in that the hostage walked away. I mean, what we did was we, the great thing in negotiation is to create opportunities for good things to happen. You're not stalling for time, you're adding time. Create things, the opportunity for good things. In this particular instance, the bad guys, we warm out with the application of empathy enough so that the hostage had the opportunity to simply walk away. No money was exchanged. And the bad guys weren't mad when it was all done. The, the lead negotiator for the, for the kidnappers actually called the guy that I was coaching on the phone to congratulate him and basically pay his respects. Not in an angry way. So we got, we got another case uh, with a different faction of the same group. They've switched everything out. They kill an American within the first week and a half. And they end up, they kill a bunch of people. I mean, they took over a dive resort. They killed people at the dive resort. They took a bunch of hostages. They sailed across the open ocean, 400 miles of ocean. They chopped off some more heads. There were some vicious guys. And then the thing ended up about 13 months later in a botched rescue attempt by the Philippine military where the two out of three remaining hostages were killed by friendly fire. I mean, it was just end to end. It was a train wreck. What I really learned in that, though, was the negotiator that was the counterpart, he negotiated with us in good faith. And his team wasn't aligned behind him. You know, our philosophy that there's always a team on the other side. You can have a great relationship with your counterpart. You can genuinely read that your counterpart is being honest with you because as far as your counterpart knows, he or she really is. If you haven't taken into account the team behind them and found a way to involve them, then your counterpart is going to have the limb sawed off behind them. It turns out that that happens in the private sector about half the time. Well, is a telecommunications company that we were talking with involved in discussions to train them in negotiations. And we found out that fully 50% of the deals that they sign, not just that, that they negotiate, but 50% of the deals they actually sign are never, never implemented. What does that mean? It means that the point of contact was out of touch with his own team. And he got the limb sawed off behind him. I once had a salesperson refer to this as being single-threaded. This happened to us in the Philippines. And I, I was it, it caught us so off guard because we assessed our counterpart as to having legitimately made a deal. And our counterpart, when his side failed to back him up, he was actually genuinely humiliated. He was embarrassed. You know, when he did all the things that somebody does when they're really embarrassed at the position that they're left in. So that taught me to take into account the team on the other side and how do we adjust accordingly. So on that note, how, what are some ways to adjust accordingly? Because I imagine this happens. I mean, this does happen all the time. You, you Let's say you're in a sales negotiation. The person you're speaking to sounds, sounds great. Let me run it by my team. We'll, we'll send it back over tonight. And then things you know, things, things go away, right? Things yeah. go away. What happened, right? It's almost like that another negotiation had to take place that we weren't a part of. Right. Right. Well, so then uh, the secret to gaining the upper hand that a negotiation has given the other side the illusion of control. First of all, you got to get your counterpart comfortable. You got to give them the illusion of control. That's principally going to come through how and what questions. How and what questions are very deferential. 
it's not that you got an answer, it's the effect you had when you asked. So the effect you want to have when you ask is like, how does everybody on your side feel about this? Do the people that have to implement this, how do they see this? Now your counterpart's going to be, oh, they're fine, they're fine, everything's good, everything's good. But the point was you asked the question which plants a seed in their mind. And then they're going to think twice about it. And you probably, you need to ask those questions a couple of times. Enough so that this person starts to think of themselves, you know, maybe I better double check because they think it's their idea. There's a little inception going on here. Remember that Leonardo DiCaprio mm -hmm. movie, trying to plant a seed. You plant, trying to plant a seed in their mind that the rest of their team is important. They have no idea that that's what you're doing. You're doing it deferentially, innocuously. As soon as they start going back to the people on their team, those people start to get looped in. You now begin to deal with your implementation issues. You're less likely to get single-threaded. Something that Chris mentioned a lot in his book and over the course of our conversation is the fundamental headspace we need to be in for successful negotiations. He calls this the mindset of discovery. First of all, the mindset of discovery is actually, it's a hack for you. It's basically a positive frame of mind and it's curious. And you can actually take in more information. You see things faster when you're in that mindset. You pull in more data. Your pattern recognition increases. All the things that go to higher mental performance. So first of all, if you have a mindset of discovery, you're going to be smarter. Probably at least 31% smarter, which is enough of an edge that if you're interested in edges, you're going to want it. Then the other thing, too, is by definition, it's an asymmetric world. It's an imperfect world. We know we don't have all the information, yet we act like we do. You know, there's never a negotiation where you're not holding stuff, close hold, holding stuff to the vest. There's never a time when you don't have cards that you're holding back. Well, if you're not doing that, then that means they get the same dynamic. So we intellectually know there's stuff that we don't know. Now, the crazy thing to really bend your mind around is what happens in the overlap. Because not only, since I don't know what they don't know, you know, the Donald Rumsfeld line, the unknown unknowns, but what's really sweet is when you hit the overlap and between the two of you, you discover stuff that if you're holding it back, it's important, which means you're going to get an exponential effect if you can uh, uncover it. Now, I imagine there's, there's people that, are there people that can't be negotiated or reasoned with? It's not that they can't be reasoned with. It's a little bit of what journey are they on? to begin with. How scared are they? What's really the goal? Like in, you know, in kidnapping negotiations, we had to recognize early on whether or not the goal was to actually kill the hostage. You know, the other side's on a killing journey. And so you got to, they want you to be part of that. The best you could do is get out of the journey. If the best thing you could do is to disrupt, then you simply withdraw. So that's something like asocial violence, essentially. Right. So somebody walks into a, a movie theater, starts shooting up everyone. That, that's not a person interested in having negotiation. Right, right. Or they're, trying, they're orchestrating a different outcome. Right. So in a business world, you, you don't really get that. But what you get is you get people that are so scared of the environment. And this has happened in the healthcare space a lot these days. They're so scared of making any deal, they'll come to the table and all they do is call names. All they, all they are is insulting. They're overwhelmingly fear-driven. Now, you can get people out of that, but 
you got to recognize that that's what's driving them. And then you got to find a way to really gently help them see that what they're doing is actually counterproductive to where they say they're trying to go. When do you know when a negotiation is a lost cause? Like, how, how do you know when to walk away? Yeah, there's, a, there's an old saying. It's not a sin to not get the deal. It's a sin to take a long time to not get the deal. So how do you know if you're the fool in the game? Actually, you just kind of ask. What kind of questions do you ask? You know, how have you done this in the past? How do you make decisions? What does your perfect partner look like? You know, these are, these are how and what questions. They're innocuous. Mm -hmm. You're trying to tease out the other side's vision from them. They might be using you just as a competing bid. They might simply be trying to get free consulting from you. Those two things are real common. In point of fact, it probably happens at least 20% of the time that the other side is never going to do business with you. They're either they're doing due diligence, which means you're competing bid, or they're looking for free consulting. So your questions are, if you proceed forward, what would that look like? With deference, they're, they're going to actually start to answer the question for you. You'll find it in a way that doesn't include you. Well, if we were going to move forward and we were going to find a firm, blah, 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 they start laying it out. Now, they'll probably catch themselves about halfway through the explanation and suddenly realize they're describing an outcome that doesn't include you. And then they'll suddenly course correct, which is a great indicator that they caught themselves lying to you and they found, and they, <laughs> I've had that happen to me a bunch of times. So the idea, though, is how do you tease out early on in a very polite way whether or not their vision of moving forward includes you. And what about on the other side of that? Like, what are, are, are people that, let's say, they would like to make a deal or they would like to at least work with you, but their vision and their world of working with you does not align with yours, meaning that they want to work with you at either half the price or half, you know, yeah, essentially yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. A, it, it's something that would not make sense, but yet the conversation is still ongoing. Right. Well, for us, we're also looking for that also early. We're going to pull out early pull out politely, which leaves the door open. You know, we, we live by something we call the Oprah rule. The last impression is the lasting impression. I'm going to disengage from that conversation very early. I'm going to disengage politely. Now, you might not let me out of the conversation politely. If you let me out of the conversation politely, then that's a great indicator that we're probably going to see each other again in the future. That you're going to think about it, you're going to come around, you're going to be impressed that I was polite about it, and that, that will resonate with you, and you're going to want to come back. Now, if you won't let me out of it politely, that's actually a predatory move, which indicated that you were always planning on taking advantage of me. Someone that we coached in a negotiation recently, she refused to be the fool in the game, she assessed them as wanting to get free consulting from her. And she simply failed to comply and said, no, nah, I don't think I can help you. I'd love to dedicate myself to you anytime in the future. If I can, do everything I can to make you successful, but I just don't think we're ready to work together right now. So she exited politely. They sent her a follow-up email saying, we would have gone with you, but you didn't share any information with us. And consequently, we chose somebody that did share information with us. Now, that's a punishing email. Right. And she was really concerned. She had 
second thoughts, like, did I do the wrong thing? Did I miss an opportunity here? Because they said that's why they didn't uh, hire me. And I said, was that a nice email as a follow-up? I go, no, no. I said, that, that's a punishing email. That's a predator's move. The predator always intended to victimize you. And when a predator can't victimize you, they get mad at you because you didn't play your role, which is another indication that they were trying to take advantage of you, of you all along and you made the right decision. So if I try to extricate from you politely and you won't allow me to extricate politely, that just tells me I'm on the right track and I need to get out of this conversation. Yeah, and sometimes uh, we've seen walking away is even a negotiation tactic. Now, if you have to do that in order for somebody to ultimately say, wait, we want to work with you, is there a relationship there? If that has to take place, if it has to get to the point where one party walks away in order for a deal to get done? No, I mean, I don't do that as a tactic. You know, to me, that's a risk. We believe in being honest, right. you know, so to pretend I'm walking away when I'm not would, would be to be disingenuous. And if I come back, then I'm telling you that I'm disingenuous, you know, that it was a tactic and I'm not sincere. If I walk away, I've got at least two or three things that back up my assessment that you're the wrong deal for me. And when I walk away, that, I mean, that's it. You know, I'm, I'm ghosting you at that point in time. You can follow up with me all you want. I'm just not gonna, I'm not gonna respond. Yeah, and a lot of this just stems from the fact of like, what type of relationships do you wanna have? Like, do you want them to be built on trust or right. somebody like perhaps being malicious or manipulating something, which in the long term never really plays out in a good way. Like if you don't no. pay for it on the front end, you'll pay for it on the back end. No, it's blood money. Right. Yeah, even, even if it's a lot of money. Oh, yeah. It's blood money, which ages you. And how do you replace that? While there are certain proven tactics that can be learned and employed to be a good negotiator, if you want to be great, there's something bigger, but more subtle at play. A nuanced skill set that challenges us to look inwards at our own emotional intelligence, our understanding of empathy, and at the neuroscientific modeling of the human brain itself. We're trying to put a little bit more of a spin on empathy, take it away from how it's become used. I mean, in society today, empathy is sympathy, empathy is agreement, empathy is compassion. And which then, if that's required, then it really limits who you can apply it with. Empathy was never meant that way. It was meant as understanding. It was, it's originally an interpretation of a German word that was about understanding art. Didn't have, even actually have anything to do with people. So, Tactical is, on top of everything that we've learned about empathy, which is just genuinely understanding, not agreeing, we know how the brain works. I mean, we've got neuroscience. Like in the last five to seven years, we put people in fMRIs. We watch the electricity move around in their brain. We watch how they respond to very specific emotional stimulations or what makes those emotional stimulations dissipate. So if we have actual neuroscience rules... Why don't we tactically apply them? And that's, that's the idea of tactical empathy. Understanding combined with neuroscience for effective communication. So another thing you've said on, on the note of empathy is that empathy is necessary for influence. Wow, yeah. Why? Well, it's a hack. I mean, it, it, is, it is, is the world's great hack for, for influence, for low-maintenance influence, for durable influence, for lasting influence. Like the crazy thing about it, uh, one of uh, Daniel Goleman's book called Focus, there's a, there's a chapter in it called The Empathy Triad. He talks about three types of empathy. One of them he refers to as cognitive empathy, which is very, very close to tactical empathy. 
And he says, the people that are best at cognitive empathy are sociopaths. And why would sociopaths accidentally adopt this approach? Because it works. And it's durable. And it's low maintenance. And sociopaths are not known for their work ethic. (laughs) They want to influence as many people as possible with as little effort as possible. And they don't want to have to come back to you every half hour to keep you on track. Tactical empathy. It's low maintenance and it works. So because you mentioned sociopaths, when people think about even learning a lot of these strategies in negotiation, I'm sure some people initially might think, well, that sounds manipulative. Right. Right. How do you bridge the gap? Because obviously the applications are very different, right? It's the same thing you look at marketing and say, okay, well, people with cult followings are great marketers, right? Right. Just as long as you don't start a cult. Uh, Right. That's actually a really good point. You know, it's a tool. You know, one person's influence is another person's manipulation. I get asked a question a fair amount of time and, you know, isn't what you're doing, isn't that manipulative? And I'll take out my phone, you know, and I'll say, have you got one of these? And they'll say, well, yeah. Well, you know, there are some really bad people using these for really evil things. So doesn't that mean you should give up your phone? Well, no, I don't use it for evil things. Well, that's exactly the point. You know, tactical empathy is extraordinarily influential. What are you using it for? If you're using it for bad things, ultimately it's going to catch up to you and your relationships are going to go away and then word is going to get out uh, that you can't be trusted. Use, you know, use your powers for good and not evil. And you're going to find yourself surrounded with phenomenal people. So we talked about tactical empathy. There's another phrase that you use, and I had to look this up when I, when I first heard it, neural resonance. Yeah. And I was like, Chris... Hold on a second. I type it in <laughs> and figure out what this means. But as uh, I started to see, it's incredibly fascinating. Uh, talk to us about it. Well, you know, again, this gets back to sort of how the brain works. You know, the electrical wiring in our brain and the amygdala in the middle of our brain, almond-sized organ, which pretty much every thought that we have either starts there or goes through there. The amygdala is a nerve center and, you know, pun intended, I suppose, command post. of the amygdala is dedicated to negative thoughts. So what do you do? Well, you understand that that's the way people are wired. People are wired to survive, not to succeed. You know, we're wired to be 75% negative because we'll survive, but we won't thrive. We won't succeed. And so you take that into account. You begin to understand how do you you lift it up to the next level. The neuroimaging, the neuroscience has shown us that the best and most effective way to deal with that negative part of our brain really is as simple as calling it out, not denying it. You don't get rid of the elephant in the room by denying that the elephant is there or trying to say, don't look at the elephant. You say, hey, you know, there's there's an elephant in the room. And that begins to diminish it, if not make it go away entirely. And that's what we're talking about when we're trying to get people to resonate with one another, understanding how we're wired and how the electricity actually runs through our brain. I remember you shared this with me a few years ago. And when we were doing one of our first conferences, I always come up there, I've got a nice suit. I imagine there's several people in the room that don't know our story, don't know kind of you know where we've come from, that see a guy, a young guy up there with a nice suit, probably thinking, trust fund kid, must be nice. And one of the first things I said, I said this literally in the first five minutes was, I bet you guys are thinking it's a pretty nice suit. And it was amazing nice. the impact that that made in disarming everybody. So in your view, just call it out. If you know that someone's thinking it, if you know it's on their mind, call it out. Yeah, exactly right. And like you said, it's astonishing how, how effective it is, isn't it? 
So what about then you know, the differences between like- Nice application, by the way. Nicely done. Thank you. Well, I, I had some help. The, the day before, I had a, a guest in our office that literally introduced me to that. So I changed it on the fly. I was like, <laughs> okay, this, this could work. Yeah. Who was that guy? Yeah. So and this actually goes into uh, uh, the next question in the sense of active listening versus selective hearing. And it seems like uh. nowadays, I, I can't think of a time, it, it almost seems like it's even getting- Either it's always existed or we're just seeing it, seeing it now in a heightened way where people are, their cognitive bias right. and the information they consume is very, very much focused on supporting what they believe as opposed to like really looking at it from multiple perspectives. I think it's more you're seeing it in a more heightened way. The one real downside to focusing on being good at listening to people is I'm surprisingly intolerant of not being listened to. <laughs> you know, if you're not listening to me, I'm going to notice it really early. We coach people that your most valuable commodity is your time. Mm -hmm. So if you're not listening to me, you're wasting my time. And I'm going to give you a couple of chances to try to, to, try to get out of it. But uh, if you're going to waste my time, then again, I'm, I'm probably going to ghost you. You're going to be really surprised. Hey, I thought this guy, this relationship-oriented guy, is not getting back to me. Well, because you were wasting my time. So there's this F word that you used, and it, it's, a, it's an extremely powerful word, apparently. The F-bomb. The F-bomb. Talk to us about it. Fairness. The F word. And it's one of those things, too, a heightened awareness of. Until we started looking for it, and now it's hard to find any negotiation ever that somebody doesn't drop the word fair at some point in time. And it's, it punches emotional buttons in such an invisible way that the, the, the cutthroats use it constantly. You know, hey, I've given you a fair offer. If I say that to you, it's going to knock you off your game. And you're not going to know what I just accused you of, of being unfair, and your inherent desire to be fair is going to cause you to come off of a position that you, don't, you shouldn't come off of otherwise. So the cutthroats use it. Also, but legitimate people use it when they feel backed into a corner. The first time I really noticed it, a friend of mine, um, she's one of the best people I know in the entire world, the most genuine, decent people I know. She's talking about a real estate negotiation where the market had dropped on them. They're selling their house. And they said to the buyer, hey, we just want what's fair. And the buyer raised their offer. Now, was it the buyer's fault that the market dropped? Those are the market conditions. It's not their fault. Why should they have to pay more just because they didn't do it? They didn't do anything. But they were so caught off guard by it that they raised their offer. And this was implemented by somebody I know to be a genuine human being. And I remember being fascinated by that for the longest time. So, you know, collectively within, within my company, my son, myself, you know, Derek Gaunt, uh, genius negotiator. My son is a better negotiator than I am. We started looking for it. We see it everywhere. So if it's always going to be there, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. What kind of emotional triggering responses will there be? How do you get out in front of it so that it doesn't damage the relationship? I, I imagine that, you know, I'm going to ask you in terms of delivering news. Now, no one has a problem delivering good news. It, it seems <laughs> like there's not a whole lot of training out there to deliver good news to people. But delivering bad news is something that we all have to do at some point in our life, probably multiple times. Right, right. And what is the best way to approach that? Two real quick critical things. The right way to do it is you say, I got bad news. You wait about a second 
and you deliver the news. Never let somebody get blindsided by bad news. They need about a second to prep themselves, no matter how bad the news is. I got bad news. Now, if you wait longer than a second, now they really start to spin down. You know, you don't go, oh, you're not going to like this. Are you sitting down? All that nonsense. People are remarkably resilient if you give them a second to brace themselves. So that's the way you deliver bad news. Now, the other part that a lot of people do wrong is before they deliver bad news, they want to say, how are you? That is not the way to do it for a lot of reasons. Number one, if you ask someone that, and, and, and I understand it can be very well-intentioned, but if you're going to deliver bad news and you got to ask them how they are, that either means you're ignorant or you're oblivious to the current situation. If I say to you, how are you? Your first thought is, especially if we're in an environment where you should be delivering me bad news, your thought is going to be, you don't know? Like, how could we be this far into this and you have no idea how I am? I mean, it, it's a very well-intentioned thing that communicates that you might be oblivious. So if you know somebody's bad, if you know they're not doing well, then start off by saying like, look, I know things are rough for you right now. That's a recognition that you see them, that you're not oblivious and that you, you care enough to actually notice and you're not, not afraid to articulate it. It's empathy. Exactly. Uh, as opposed to being oblivious. You know, the funny thing is, I know so many stories where employees were about to get fired, they knew they were about to get fired, and the person firing them started out by saying, how are you? I mean, come on. <laughs> it's well-intentioned, but it's off base. So the better approach is coming in and saying, got some bad news? Got bad news. Today's your last day at our, at our organization. That would be perfect. They're not going to be shocked. They're going to appreciate the warning. They're going to appreciate the fact that you then didn't hold them and let them twist in the wind for a long period of time. Give people the chance to be emotionally resilient, and they will be. Now, what about what comes after that? Because I've seen certain you know, business owners really struggle where it becomes, and even, even if I look back at myself, where because you have that level of empathy, what could be a five-minute meeting turns into an hour meeting because it's almost like you're trying to soften it for them. Right. Yeah, and that attempt to soften it is well-intentioned, but torturous. You rip the Band-Aid off. Just because you don't want it to hurt doesn't mean you should rip it off more slowly. You know, the, the most humane thing to do is to let them have it. Don't let them twist in the wind. You cannot soften a blow. There is no gentle way to cut off somebody's head Unless you're trying to cut it off nicely, then it's going to be torture. What do you do after that? Have a game plan laid out. They're going to be in a little bit of a state of shock. You're going to say, here's how, here's how we're going to proceed. There are a couple of immediate concerns that they're going to have. you got to give things a chance to sink in, and then you begin to address the immediate concerns. People want a way forward. They want to know what the truth is. They appreciate straight shooters. What's a straight shooter? A straight shooter is somebody who tells the truth in an emotionally intelligent way. They don't let people twist in the wind. They don't torture people in the guise of being nice. So you mentioned earlier, you know, and I believe this happened actually the same year. When you retired from the FBI, you started a negotiation coaching and training company by the name of Black Swan. Right. And 
I can say with confidence, we've had several team members like go to these events that have participated in the trainings. It has been transformational for us. And I'm not saying that just because you're, you're sitting here. I mean, we've literally seen the results. But why the name Black Swan? Yeah, well, uh, originally inspired, uh, Nicholas Nassim Taleb uh, wrote a book, 2007, called The Black Swan, The Impact of the Highly Improbable. So at the same time I'm coming out of uh, the FBI. I stumbled across a book. I take a deeper dive into it, and I see that he originally got the idea from the um, 16th century Europe. You know, all they ever saw were white swans. They thought if there would ever be a black swan, it would be an impossible thing. And, and then subsequently they discover black swans in Australia. So the idea that small, little, innocuous things can have a tremendous impact. How do you uncover those, the little things that have the great impact, the impact of the highly improbable? How do you become the type of person that makes little changes and it has a huge impact on everything that you do? So it's a double metaphor, you know, uncovering the black swans in the negotiation, you know, where the unknowns overlap, and then also being someone who just makes slight changes in your approach and it has a huge difference on everything. So there's probably people listening to this right now that are hearing this and saying, I'm a great negotiator. Yeah. Like they, are, they know they are wonderful negotiators. What could they possibly learn, Chris, at your events? Yeah, somebody says I'm a great negotiator. That's a saying which is an indicator of a closed mind. You know, that's somebody saying like, you know, I, I pretty much learned everything there is to know. Well, that's a closed mind, which means they've been stagnating. There ain't no neutral. You're either growing or you're stagnating. There isn't any other way around that. And, and to stay even actually takes effort. So to crown yourself as accomplished pretty much says that you don't think you have anything left to learn. And people that don't have anything left to learn are remarkably mediocre. So, so much of it is just about having that innate curiosity. You know, where somebody's at, where they're coming from, what, this, you know, what their story is. People love talking about themselves, right? It's like, when in doubt, ask if, them a question. If you'll just listen. Yeah. The people who don't want to talk about themselves are, are, are the ones that have just are fed up with not being listened to. I'm not going to talk about myself if you're not going to listen. But if you indicate that you're actually genuinely interested, boy, it's amazing what they'll tell you. So what would be, I mean, people listening to this podcast, what would be maybe two or three actionable things that they can do and start practicing in their day-to-day -day negotiations, like just tactics they can take away from this and apply starting today? Do something we call cold read. Whoever you walk up to, take a look at them, see what their countenance, their demeanor, the look on their face, the way they're holding their body. You get a quick, rough guess read on it. And call it out, you know, say, tough day, or seems like you enjoy what you're doing, or seems like there's a lot on your mind. You know, just call something out. You don't got to get it right. By taking a read like that, you're actually telling them, you know, I see you as a human being. I took enough time instead of saying, how are you? I'm going to make a guess on how you are. You'll be astonished at the number of people that, that they'll just kind of, they'll wake up or they'll shake it off. You know, I, I walked up to uh, an airline uh, person at LAX a couple of months ago. The type of person that was looking away from me so it was ordered to not wait on me. And she finally meets my eyes and I just, I walk up there and I go, tough day? And she, she shook it off and it brightened up. 
And she says, no, 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 as a matter of fact, no, it's not. You know what? It's not. How can I help you? Completely changed her mood in, in the moment by just calling out what I saw. It, it, it almost, it's like a pattern interrupt in a way, right? That's a real good description. It is a pattern interrupt. Whereas I, I'm curious just in, in your experience. I know you travel a lot. You have a number of things going on. I, you know, and I've got the master class. You've got the live events, the book, which has been sitting at the top of Amazon, really probably yeah. probably the start of Amazon, it seems, because that thing won't drop. Um, so I can congratulate you. It's amazing. But what are some of the things that you do daily to stay on your game? Like any, any like either daily practices or habits that you do to stay sharp? Yeah, well, you know, I'll talk to a Lyft driver. Or I'll, I'll throw out a label on, on anybody because i got to stay sharp. It's a, it's, a, it's a perishable skill. And on negotiation, any other perishable skill, in any given moment, i got three choices for tomorrow. I'm either going to be even, I'm going to be worse, I'm going to be better. I want to at least be even. I find that my skills deteriorate if I'm not intentionally using them. One of the advantages while traveling a lot is we're always no- negotiating upgrades on hotel. And so this is an opportunity for me to take an approach that at least is going to make the person behind the counter feel better. I will have at least brightened their day. Now, that also leans them in the direction of trying to do something extra for me. You know, never be mean to somebody who could hurt you by doing nothing, which is pretty much everybody you talk to, which means the flip side of that is nearly everybody you talk to could help you if they felt like it. So uh, I try to get them to feel like it and get something, at least they feel better, and I generally always get something out of it. Well, Chris, as you know, this is a Game Changer podcast. What does being a Game Changer mean to you? You know, having a positive impact on people. You know, we're going to do better the more we have a positive impact on other people. I'm sure it's going to sound corny. But we love doing business with people who are doing the right thing. You know, moving the world forward in a positive way. I'm I'm ridiculously optimistic because there's so many business people out there that are actually making the world a better place. And they're actually making a lot of money at the same time. You know, there's there's no problem with that. You know, they, they need to make money in order to have more of an impact on more people and also to demonstrate that what they're doing is profitable. You know, you're setting a great example. So to me, it's being a game changer is being involved with people who are game changers. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Game Changing Attorney Podcast and gained some new insights from our timeless conversation. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at GameChangingAttorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on our interview with Chris Voss, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit legalpodcast.com. Oh, 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 oh